Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, the weekly show where we talk about what Christianity is, what we should believe, why we should believe it, how we can defend it and faithfully live it out. And today is going to be a fun conversation, a conversation I love having. I mean, I guess every week is kind of a fun conversation, but this one is especially fun. I like having uh, my guest, uh, Matt, uh, writing from the blog Apollo Jedi, and that's what he goes by on Twitter, and so that's his name there, uh, is going to come. And we're going to have this. He is here. He's not going to come. You're sitting, you're right there. Everyone can see you. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So as you probably have seen in the description and everything that is going uh, in the picture and why you probably clicked on this video is that we're going to be having a conversation on the age of the earth. Now we are going to be focusing more so on what does scripture say? What does scripture allow for? Are there scriptural justifications for young earth creationism? What about old earth creationism? Uh, this is not a show where we're going to get into the scientific evidence. Neither of us are scientists, but we are both Christians wanting to rightly understand God's word. And so that's going to be the conversation that we have and, and ultimately recognizing as we'll talk about, that the most important thing is how do we recognize and understand uh, what God's word is, the authority it has in our lives, and then how do we accurately interpret it? And so we're using the age of the earth and Genesis as a tool, as a kind of a practice test to see how do we apply uh, what we want to do and how we interpret God's word to scripture. And this is kind of the example that we are using. So uh, that's what today's conversation is going to be about. So if you want to send in your questions, your objections, your pushback against my view, Matt's view, this is not a debate, uh, but this is a conversation where we both have a different take. And so we're going to be kind of going back and forth and pushing back against each other and just trying to better understand the other side and hopefully help you understand uh, a biblical case for maybe both an old earth and a young earth. So definitely put your objections and your questions in the live chat if you're watching live. So thank you guys for being here. And uh, Matt, so we'll just jump off and we'll start off by asking you this question. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into uh, apologetics maybe and specifically this topic on the age of the earth. Sure. Again, thanks Ryan for having me and uh, a little bit about myself. I have a wonderful wife of 23 years, two grown kids, both home from college right now. Uh, we're enjoying uh, having them in the house. It's been great. Uh, as far as getting into apologetics, I grew up in a Christian home, wonderful mom and dad, always had a Bible uh, teaching and around the house. We were always a church. But when I was confronted with a friend of mine at my first job after college who, in a similar environment to me, grew up in a Christian home, but when he was faced with what he saw as evidence for evolution, he uh, renounced his faith and became an atheist. I didn't have real answers for him, and so mm -hmm. that kind of began a path. Uh, a road that I was interested in not just uh, taking on my parents' faith, but making it real to myself and trying to answer some of the hard questions. And what right. does the world see as important or evidence and why uh, we can have faith in God's word? So uh, I don't have a degree in philosophy. People will probably quickly find that out, but I enjoy reading God's word. I enjoy Absolutely. learning uh, I feel like I uh, enjoy reading and answering objections to God's word, or how we, when we read it, uh, we can we can definitely trust God's revelation in His word. So yeah. uh, that's what has led me to the path of apologetics, and uh, I really enjoy being here. You'll see also that I am I have a, a face for radio and a voice for blogging. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, awesome. Well, yeah. So, you know, we got uh, put in contact through a mutual contact, I guess, um, on Twitter. And so, you know, we're just kind of meeting for the first time. We had a good time to chat here a little bit. But hopefully, you know, for those who are are listening after the fact on podcast or live, you know, what we kind of discussed is this is me and you. Uh, sitting down kind of over over our coffee, cup of coffee and having a conversation on something that we think matters and is important um, and trying to kind of under, better understand each other and allowing for everybody else to kind of listen into that conversation and jump in uh, as they as they want with their questions. And so um, I, just kind of jumping straight in then to the topic um, when it comes to the age of the earth uh, and, and the interpretation of Genesis, um, kind of where would you put yourself and um I guess we'll get into a lot of uh, different reasons, but uh, kind of where would you put yourself in that conversation? Sure. I would hold what is largely regarded as the young earth position. And uh, it, I got that from reading God's word. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and as I mentioned before, you know, I, I, I hold to an old earth position. And so that's going to be the conversation. Um I would just love your kind of initial thoughts. And we're, again, going to iron out a lot of details as we go along. But what would be kind of be your initial thoughts on old earth creationism? And yeah, those who hold to it. So th these are not my initial thoughts. My initial thoughts would have happened years and years ago. But yeah. for the <laughs> listener audience, what how I would describe old earthism perhaps is a view that uh, the earth is billions of years old in accordance with how people see the modern academic paradigm and the attempt to make it cohesive with what is written in scripture. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I often get kind of the pushback from young earthers where it's like, I believe that the earth is old and then they immediately kind of equate old earth creationism adding on evolution as well. Uh, would you take a similar view where if you hold an old earth then evolution automatically comes with it, or would you kind of be someone who says, no, there, there's a, there's a distinction between evolutionary creationism and kind of old earth, big bang cosmology. Very much. No, there's, there's many flavors of people who hold to an old earth position. There's the, you know, the, I think the far left position with the, the theistic evolutionists who may have the idea that God kind of kickstarted it and then everything has run completely by natural forces ever since then. And they would uh, go with uh, evolution. Then, uh, then there's the Hugh Ross type position where it's progressive creation and, or is he framework? Progressive. Day progressive. And so yeah. he, he doesn't teach biological evolution, but he does hold to uh, galactic evolution, stellar evolution, uh, chemical evolution, lunar, terrestrial, those other types of evolution, but not specifically biological evolution as we would, we would think of. Uh, and then I, I guess that's, those are the two main, uh, flavors. There's uh, recently in the last 10 years or so, there is a, a group that, uh, uh, John Walton's camp that, and they're not necessarily old earth, but they uh, allow for it. They, they say the Bible is agnostic about the age of the earth altogether. Uh, but I find most of them hold to a an old earth position. Okay. Now, when you say that Hugh Ross holds to a galactic, you, you mentioned a few different kinds of evolution that he would hold to, uh, chemical and, and whatnot. You mentioned galactic evolution. Uh, what exactly would you mean by uh, him believing in galactic evolution? Uh, as As stars evolve or emerge from the the typical uh 
view, I guess, the uh, how uh, scientists, uh, atheistic scientists would say how stars are birthed and come together. And then over time, they coalesce into galaxies. So a galactic evolution, a, a collection uh, by gravity or uh, however they say that galaxies form naturalistically. Okay, so a okay, so the the formation uh, of the galaxy, the formation of the but, galaxy, yes. Okay, so um, I guess you know some questions, kind of based on what you're saying here, because you said based on how they form naturalistically, because um, like in one sense, like there's not a uh, a natural like I, I don't like there's a how do I want to say this? Because I think this is a common question I have that relates to what we just talked about is. Um, there's kind of a naturalistic explanation, right? So uh, when I ask the question about like how uh, a secularist you needs kind of Big Bang cosmology and evolution, right? If you're not going to have God as creator, you kind of need both of these to work together. You need the the time of millions and billions of years in order to allow for that evolution. Uh, but as a Christian, we can reject a naturalistic explanation of biology, but we can say that uh, the explanation of, for example, cosmology, uh, is true in a sense. Um, and so we don't have to accept both views if that. So I guess my question is, is there's, there are naturalists who hold to a certain view. Does it make that view a naturalistic explanation? Or can we say God formed the galaxies using this mechanism? Yeah, we definitely can say that. Uh, what, and as a young earth, person i would do a little pushback to say that seems arbitrary to take a naturalistic explanation for the origins of stars chemicals galaxies planets moons and take that naturalistic explanation but then say well we're not going to take the biological one because that has that can very quickly lead to gospel centered issues yeah uh so it seems arbitrary to me uh and the the natural naturalistic explanation of the formation of chemicals, galaxies, stars, all that doesn't fit with what I read in Genesis one. Mm -hmm. It seems ad hoc when you try to put them together. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, and I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, I want this to be more of the Genesis one biblical account, but I think there's a couple interesting questions here that just came to mind. And so we're kind of just rolling with it. If that's yeah. okay with you. Uh, totally. No, now, I, don't, I don't feel pressured at all. Wonderful. So I'm curious, uh, based on what you just said there, because I think so. My response would be that uh, we can't. It's not necessarily arbitrary. I accept this one and not this one. It's it's trying to look at the evidence, and if there's strong evidence for the formation of galaxies, uh, and there's not strong evidence for an evolutionary account, then I can say, yeah, I think this one is true and not this one. And it's not just picking and choosing theories I like, but it's saying this one actually has evidentially good reasons to believe. This one doesn't have good evidentially evidential reasons to believe. And so it's not as arbitrary. What would you kind of say to, to a thought like that? So again, it, it goes back to me to which is the authority. And if I read in scripture, the, the order of creation, it is in conflict with what you might interpret to be the evidence of the formation of galaxies or okay. what cosmologists have said, this is the order of events that happened to get to where we are now, you can either take the authoritatively, if there if there's an apparent contradiction in what God revealed in Genesis one versus what cosmologists say are is the order of events that 
they see as evidence now. If there's an apparent conflict, we have to either choose one or the other as the authority to make a resolution. So when I see the difference, I'm always going to go to scripture as the resolution for that apparent contradiction because I, and we're going to get to this. I don't want to get yeah. ahead in your questions, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about the, the book of nature or God's natural revelation. And we'll, we'll get into more details of that. I believe that all of, all of nature is part of God's revelation as well. Yeah. And so they should be, they should be aligned. Yeah, absolutely. But it's going to be the interpretation of how people see the modern academic paradigm when it seems to be in conflict with scripture, which gets to be the authority. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we are definitely going to get to that. Now, kind of last introductory question I have uh, is um, this idea of I'm curious how uh, important you, 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 I guess how important you put this issue, right? And so as I often say on my show, I see this issue as being secondary. I see it similar to Calvinism, Arminianism, or different types of eschatology, whether you believe in a rapture or not, and those sort of things. There are these secondary and tertiary issues that we can kind of agree to disagree on. It's not saying that all views are right. I'm not a postmodernist. I'm not saying that everyone is correct. Uh, I definitely hold views, and I, what I think scripture says on those, but I would never say that someone's not a Christian because they disagree with me. Um, and I can get along with someone just well, and we can worship together and have differences on the minors. Obviously, we're not disagreeing on God existing or Jesus being God or his death and resurrection. And so would you be in a similar position of, of saying that this topic of the age of the earth is kind of a secondary issue? It's important, but we can agree to disagree. Or is this salvation issue? And if you are an old earther or you believe in, you know, we'll keep evolution out. If you're an old earther, um, Mm-hmm. you you have to change because there's there's follow-up issues that really this is going to affect you. Yeah, this question comes up a lot, uh, definitely in these debates. You know, people wonder, do you think I'm a heretic because of this, that, or the other? <laughs> and so I don't want to put a an ordinal hierarchy on first order, second order, whatever. To reframe, let me, let me maybe reframe the question a little bit yeah, to say, yeah. We nobody is saved by the quantity of correct information they believe. Because if that were the case, I couldn't believe enough correct information to save myself. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. it's going to be a spectrum of correct knowledge, justified true beliefs. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith alone. We see that in scripture. So, uh, how we started our conversation when I just met you today, right before we got on this call you prayed and man that blessed me it it brought us together in unity and i i see no reason why whether someone believes old earth or young earth can't worship together can't pray together can't praise our uh, eternal creator together those are definitely uh we can find unity in that that doesn't mean this conversation is unimportant right. like i said we, when we talk about the authority of scripture that is, a, that is a very important thing for all of us, and uh, let's let's leave the, the the authority later. But yes, it is important. But I do consider you a brother in Christ. I consider many old Earth creationists brothers in Christ, and we may disagree. I disagree with my brother and my son, my wife. There's there's <laughs> nobody who believes as good as I do, right? Of course. I mean, no, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I am definitely can't save myself through the amount of correct information that I believe. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm wrong in many cases all over, and my wife will tell me almost every day. <laughs> so, yeah, 
yes, we yeah. can definitely worship together. But I don't is know that... the, the the ordinal hierarchy of second, third, fourth, first, whatever. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah. There's there's a, a lot of things that are very humbling. Marriage being one of them. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so kind of when we get to this, I, I'm curious because again, I, with this conversation, I think a lot of it comes down to is uh, how does science affect our our interpretation of scripture? And so I'm curious to kind of hear your thoughts on exactly how you see science influencing our theology. Um, it, it, do we allow any science to come in to inform our reading of scripture or do we completely kind of keep that out and just read first? Okay. So this is, this is, this is it. This is the, I think the right. crux of our conversation. Right. I don't think that science should inform our theology. I think our theology should inform our science. Again, that frames the question uh, better. And then I want to go to the correct definition. Let's define our terms of what science is. And I think in many cases, this this term science gets thrown around as if it is a an entity with a singular voice that speaks in a robotic voice. This the science is settled. And well, yeah, you always hear that science says. I know. I hear that all the time. <laughs> I don't. I don't know who science is. <laughs> sadly, in many of these conversations, the conversation is framed science versus the Bible. Right. And so I like to to say. Whenever, whenever that people bring that to me, I would like to say, well, let's let's talk about not science is. Uh, let's see, I've got it written down here somewhere. Um, I should have taken better notes. It's the systematic study of nature through observation and experimentation. So it's a method, not an entity. Okay, so that if we're talking about a method, a method is definitely compatible with God's word. Uh, an entity that speaks as a singular voice that the science has settled is not uh, going to be compatible with God's word because obviously the the people who control the microphone are not going to allow that. So I like to say, well, it's it's the modern academic paradigm versus scripture, and okay. it's the interpretation of observations and experimentation that is opposed to God's word. People, people look at something, they look at evidence, and they, then they make an interpretation of that evidence. And, if it, and, then, and then they'll say whether or not that interpretation is in conflict with God's word. So I like to frame yeah. that as the modern academic paradigm. Yeah, and I, I think I like I, I love the way that you put that, and I would agree with you in the sense that you know I frame it in my conversations as it's not science versus Christianity, but it's naturalism versus Christianity, right? It is, it is you know science doesn't as Frank Turek says science doesn't say anything, scientists do. And so science is giving us data that we are observing about the world, but it's people with worldviews that have to interpret that data. And there are interpretations of the data that contradict a Christian worldview, a naturalistic worldview, a naturalistic interpretation, as well as, I think, Christian interpretations um, or uh, of that. And so our goal in science should be what is true about the natural world versus I think a problem we can get into is what is the best natural explanation of the natural world? And it's like that's immediately ruling out a supernatural explanation or other possibilities. Our question should be saying what's true. And... Um, so kind of a common thing that you mentioned on that, and I think is helpful, is is an illustration that I use, and you already kind of referenced to it. I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, uh, is how I, not, I didn't come up with this, but what I use is, is this right here. I think everyone can see. Um, 
that this idea that God has revealed himself to us in two ways. There's general revelation and special revelation, uh, general revelation being his nature. Uh, this would come from verses like Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. As well as uh, Romans chapter 1, right? That uh, the invisible attributes, namely God's divine uh, power, uh, can be clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So we have... God revealing himself in nature. Uh, then we have scripture uh, being God's special revelation where we learn more specific information uh, about salvation and about uh, our sinfulness and, and that kind of stuff that we learn in scripture and God's plan of to rescue and redeem his uh, world. And so us as humans, um, we are doing science to try to better understand God's creation and we're doing theology to better understand God's scripture. And that if our science is accurately understanding God's creation and our theology is accurately understanding God's scripture, then our science and theology should agree. Um, I'm curious how you would uh, approach this kind of uh, framework of interpreting or using both general and special revelation to better understand God's revelation to us. Sure. Um, so I totally agree that God has revealed himself and I, I he's re revealed himself in three ways. Usually when I'm, when you, usually when I'm talking to a skeptic, uh, I'm, I tell them that the, the three revelations of God, his special revelation creation, or uh, his general revelation creation, special revelation of the Bible, and thirdly, in Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. And they are all three in agreement with one another. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I, I, call it, I call it the uh, self-authenticating interdependent revelation of God. So okay. God, Jesus is the creator. Okay, The Bible speaks of Jesus as the creator. Um, uh, since the Bible handles that, we know that all three should be in concert. When they appear to be out of uh, out of concert or not in agreement, then there's an interpretation wrong. Because God's mm -hmm. revelation, the one who knows everything and is eternally faithful, will always reveal himself as true and faithful. He knows everything. So I think we agree with that, about that. The the one thing I would agree disagree about your your slide is the naming of creation as a book uh it is okay. a revelation but it is not the same it doesn't have the same specificity as a book i can't i can look at a mountain but that doesn't tell me that i am a sinner in need of a holy god uh for and it, that person in jesus christ and his revelation to be saved does that kind of make sense what i'm saying so yeah. it doesn't have the same clarity uh and people can look at creation and obviously they have and have seen uh that are they, they uh, assume that the Bible and creation are in disagreement? Yeah. So, uh, so kind I, of, I disagree with okay. maybe the, the wording of that 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 it is a that is a book. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I I didn't come up with the term. This is a book. I think uh, I think this the idea of is you know coming from like a Psalm nineteen one that the that that you know night to night is revealing knowledge. Right. Books give knowledge. And so creation is revealing knowledge. And so call it a book, call it something else. I think that's kind of less important than saying God has given us two different revelations, uh, whatever you want to call those revelations. Both one is revealing knowledge of the creator and who he is. Sure. Let me let me add another verse in here to help give some nuance to the discussion. And when we think about nature or creation as part of God's revelation, we look at Romans 8, and for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to corruption mm 
to, uh, to, to be brought into glorious freedom with the children of God. And we know the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. So creation, while it is a revelation, is going to be an imperfect picture uh, of what God revealed it to, to be before the fall. We, and, we, and we see that because of the fall, the creation now is a blurred revelation for who God is. And so we shouldn't try to take that blurred revelation of who God is and what he wants us to know about who he is and his divine power, uh, his, his great, na his wonderful nature, and then try to bring that into the scripture, God's eternal word, as an authoritative mechanism. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. When God spoke in his word, that's that's going to definitely be the highest authority. Okay. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. There's a couple things that you said I'm kind of curious to, to get some clarification on, I think, for the purpose of our conversation. You mentioned how uh, general revelation is not giving us this, this clear picture, like you don't look at a mountain and see uh, you are a sinner. Um, and it seems to be kind of maybe confusing or equating that general revelation and special revelation are the same thing, rather than recognizing that these are two different forms of God's revelation, giving us two different pieces of information. And so you okay. might call it, you might not use like the word book, but it's like, uh, you know, uh, one gives you this information and one gives you this, and they're not necessarily going to be the same. So we shouldn't expect to look at nature and get you're a sinner, uh, but we also shouldn't expect to look at the Bible and get particle physics or, you know, electrons and neutrons. Like they're, they're telling us two different things about the same creator. Um, and so to say that, well, you can't look at a mountain and learn that you're a sinner doesn't speak against learning information about God from nature. Totally. And I hope you didn't get from what okay. I said. If I said that, then I didn't communicate well. So okay. I, to put some, to put some nuance on that, uh, you know, both of us being married, we have the understanding that God created uh, mankind in his image. If, if it were only a man or only a woman that he revealed himself, the image of God couldn't be known as well as it is with both the male and the female. They're, they're both part of the revelation of the image of God as image bearers. I don't fully represent the nature n nobody fully represents the nature of god and even as a married couple you know we don't fully represent but god's image has a fuller bearing with both the male and the female so similarly god's word reveals part of who god is and creation reveals a little bit of who god is yeah but when they appear to be in conflict we have to be careful of which one ultimately comes out as the authoritative principle absolutely so for sure it always goes back to yeah we, we look at a mountain and so when we look at the, uh, the the mountain how did it get here then we can have questions the history the things that are not observed when we look at the boiling point of water and those kind of things i can measure it in the present it'll always be the same at the same elevation those kind of things are going to be they're going to match up those uh, observations and we can have reasons why they may be different at different elevations and all that but where did the mountain come from is a question that uh, people can look at and say, well, it looks like it's, it's from millions of years, or it looks like, if we look at God's word, does that tell us maybe a different story? Yeah, I, that makes sense. Um, 
Okay, wonderful. The, the other kind of question I had based on what you mentioned there is is when you referenced Romans 8, uh, that the creation is groaning, um, that there's kind of this, uh, as we see in Genesis uh, chapter 3, that there's a curse put on creation. So I'm curious how that would um, affect how you look at science, um, what can be known, what can't be known. Um, if, if there's a blurriness to it, how do we decipher um, what is trustworthy and what's not in studying God's creation? Well, when we empiricism, if someone uh, we've both talked to empiricists who think that uh, observation and experimentation is the only way to only a path to knowledge, right. and that has been shown over and over to be uh, that that is a self defeating argument for them to right. say that. So I'm not attributing that to you as your we. So the question you asked me of how what can we trust, what can we not trust. I think we could trust things that we can measure in the present. We, the, this whole issue is is more of an issue of origins and what is about the past. So we ought to be able to look about what does the Bible tell us about the past first, and then take his history, a historical record that is not going to ever be wrong, and then say, well, how does that now affect what I study today? in terms of origins or how did this get here how did how did we get things that we can see and measure in the present okay fair enough um so i know there's a lot of uh, in in our kind of conversation back and forth last week there's a lot of kind of specifics that i want to get to and i think we spent yeah. the first 30 minutes kind of looking big picture which i think is good but i kind of want to get into some specifics based on um some things so so one reason why i think um the uh, well, maybe I share this on the picture here. Um, one thing that I, I think, and kind of going back to what you mentioned, is is that I think that not only is um, our our scientific understanding of nature is is flawed, right? Uh, but I think that I often hear young Earthers uh, say this idea that like, well, you're comparing a flawed man's knowledge of science, uh, a fallible human being's knowledge, compared to the infallible word. And, and what I want to say to that is saying, well, I'm not comparing fallible human scientific knowledge to infallible word. I'm comparing fallible scientific human knowledge to fallible theological knowledge because I'm a fallible human being trying to understand God's nature and I'm a fallible human being trying to understand God's scripture. And so uh, I could be, so not that scripture is mistaken, but I could be mistaken in reading scripture in the same way I could be mistaken reading, uh, understanding nature and doing science. So how do you understand the fact that I'm fallible affects my theology just as much as it should affect my science? That's a great question. Um, let me go to an, another example, perhaps. The Mormons, the, uh, I have another group. There, there are other cults who claim to believe the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so as Christians, you and I would agree that a Mormon view of the bible is incorrect right and the way would be we would be able to correct them is not by origins research or not by some scientific thing we will correct someone's view of theology by looking at the scriptures hermeneutical authorities so when we look at scripture and they say this we can say well you have a wrong understanding of this because of what scripture says here and those have to be cohesive so you have disregarded not you a, a cult person yeah. would disregard a, a part of scripture or redefine it 
to be able to accommodate a different view of scripture. For the Jehovah's Witness, John 1, they put the extra uh, adjective or the, uh, the, the A in there. God, uh, right. The word was a God. Well, that's not there in the Greek, but to make their view hold, they have to, they have to add that or redefine something else. So as, uh, as Christians, we, we're going to go back to Scripture. That's, that's going to be our authority. So I take uh, – maybe you should ask your question again so I don't answer it incorrectly. I'll let you yeah, ask so, it again. If I didn't answer well, that, what you were thinking. Yeah, so I think uh, it's – I think what I see as a common mistake uh, when I hear conversations is to say, well, this is science compared to Scripture, Right. And so it's it's as I have further on the slide, but I, I don't have that screenshot here. It's it's taking the arrow instead of going from science over to theology. It's going from science to scripture. Mm -hmm. And we want to compare science versus scripture rather than recognizing we have to interpret scripture. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm comparing my interpretation of scripture in the same way against my interpretation of nature and saying mm -hmm. I could be wrong on either one. Now, I think when we're talking about Mormonism, I think we can look at scripture and clearly see how there's a twisting or how there's a mistake, or you've clearly added this that was not there. Um, when I think it's the age of the earth, I think that we're, we're saying, well, no, this is science versus scripture rather than science versus our theology, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so in the so same way I, that my science could be wrong, my theology could be wrong. I could be mistaken on some doctrines, um, you know, depending on what they are. And I'm more than happy to go into the scripture of why yeah. I think young earth is the consistent defendable position, whereas old earthism to me seems to have some serious holes. Yeah. So, so I would still hold scripture as that authority. Right. So well, I 100% agree with you there, right? So I think we can agree that scripture needs to be the authority. I guess what I'm curious is, would you consider your position to be your interpretation of scripture or are you equating your position as being scripture itself? Uh, that's another good Good point. Um, my younger brother has a doctorate in mathematics, and one of the things – he's super smart, way smarter than me. One of the things he told me that uh, I appreciate is all models are wrong. Some are useful. So the young earth model is a model, and it doesn't – it does not carry the same weight as scripture. The old earth model or the many old earth models are models. They don't carry the same weight as scripture. Does that kind of make sense? So, yes, you and I, as we've already talked about, can be in unity around Christ and we can worship together. So we can discuss then our differences in our understanding of origins and how they came about hopefully looking for a consistent position yeah. and it's going to be hard to resolve that for you to, to lay people, or at least I'm a lay people in a 30 minute dialogue on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> millions and millions of words have been written about it. And I've written a lot of words about it on my blog. I'd be happy to right. discuss with people beyond, or we can do a part two if we want, but yeah. And Hey, there's a, there's a link to, to Matt's blog below in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, so you can definitely find a lot that he's written there on his blog as well. So I, I want to encourage you to check that out, I guess. And maybe people think maybe those who are listening are like, man, Ryan, you're beating a dead horse. You've, you've kind of covered this, I guess, I guess again, where I see some tension and maybe I'm not understanding you well, or maybe it's just not, I don't know, but it's what I want to like kind of start on an even playing field is, is to say, look, in my view, 
we are both doing our best to interpret God's word and saying, what did God say? What did God reveal? You think he revealed this. I think he revealed this. Let's talk about and try to figure out what God revealed. And it seems difficult when I have conversations with other young earthers that say, no, my position is God's word. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you are going against God's word. And so there's no way that I can say anything because I'm, I'm contradicting scripture rather than admitting and saying, I'm contradicting your interpretation of what God says. Maybe God revealed my position and you're the one that's going, you know? And so it's like, are we on the same playing field, both trying to understand God or as some other young earthers have said, no, my interpretation is God's word. Therefore you're just contradicting it. And there's almost nothing I can say because they don't see themselves as having to interpret the word. It's already, this is scripture. If that makes sense. I think it would be audacious and out of line for me to say that what I believe about Scripture is the correct interpretation of Scripture. I okay. want to be consistent. Now, if I believed something other than my belief, then that would be my belief. But if I believe that what I'm understanding of God's Word is true, then someone should be able to, by God's Word, show me where that I'm, where that I'm wrong. If we disagree on the interpretation and then you need to be, by scripture be able to show me where i'm wrong not by appealing to right a, a super smart cosmologist interpretation of the distant past perfect okay yeah awesome well i know i told you this is gonna be a conversation going back and forth and i feel like i'm asking the majority of the questions so I, maybe i'll just say hey is there a question that you want to ask me before i kind of ask uh more specifics about all right let's get into genesis and let's see what it says and how we view that okay uh well it's your show so i don't want to uh intrude on your show i, I sent you a, a few questions beforehand maybe you'd be, be prepared for a few of them so let me just ask the first one one of the biggest problems I've had with an old earth belief versus a young earth belief is when we read in the Genesis account one through three, God commands that there's going to be a curse for disobedience. Mm -hmm. And he lays out the uh, curses once mankind has rebelled. And we see evidence of that everywhere. We see the, the curses all around us, death and uh, bloodshed and cancer and all these terrible, horrible things that won't be in our future. So in your view of old earthism, how do how are you able to accommodate the curses of sin being present in creation prior to mankind having sinned in Genesis 3? Yeah, so I think this is, um, uh, I think a really good question. And, and this is one of those things where it's like, hey, if, if you are going to take an old earth interpretation. This is one of those difficult challenges, right, that you need a response to. And so I think there's a three different ways in which um, I would address it. Now, at least uh, how your question in the email was phrased is how do I uh, accommodate that uh, the curses of sin existing prior to sin. And so I would say that uh, I want to be clear that I don't think sin existed before sin came into existence. Uh, so sin came into existence with Adam and Eve. Um, and so there was no sin necessarily before that. Um, so along with that, though, I don't think that um, that animal death is a sin. Um, and so I don't see that as a curse of the sin. I, I look at the um, 
the curses of Genesis chapter three, put on the serpent, on, on Adam and Eve and on nature of that the toil will be hard and all that kind of stuff put on nature. And then when I look at Romans chapter five, which also kind of uh, speaks into this saying that the entire world, you know, sin came through one man and then death through sin. And this spread to all people because people sin. And so I take the stance that the curse of sin is death on humans, not necessarily death on animals. Um, I don't see animal death as being a, a sinful, bad thing. Um, and, and so, um, so that would be kind of one aspect. Now, reason why is because I think uh, the way that I would define sin is that sin is going against God's design, right? Sin is going against the way that God has created. And so if God has designed the world to function in this way, where a lion eats a zebra, uh, and that's God's design, then that is a good thing. And so it may not seem good to us. You know, I've seen pictures in common um, kind of young earth material where it's like a picture of an alligator eating an antelope. And it says, do you think this was happening before? And my answer is, well, if that's the way that God created alligators and antelope to live, like, then yeah, that was happening. And that's not wrong because sin is going against God. If God made it that way, then God can make alligators to eat antelope and say that is good um, mm -hmm. because it's it's God doing that. And so um, I, I, so that would be kind of my view of sin, its effect on humans, not necessarily the animals. Um, and then lastly, I think that we have this understanding, uh, that, um, that pain is always kind of a bad thing. And I don't necessarily think that. And so one kind of thought I've had is, is that when you look at Genesis chapter three, uh, where, um, it says the curse, the, the, the God speaking to Eve, it says your pain will be multiplied or your pain will increase. And so I, I think, and I, I take this position that pain is not always bad. Pain is very valuable. Pain is a, is a good teacher of lessons. Pain teaches us what is, what danger is, right? You, you burn your hand. It's like, don't do that again. And so pain is a good thing that God has built into us. And we see Eve's pain increasing or multiplying as the scripture says, not starting. It doesn't say now you will begin to have pain. It says your pain will be multiplied. And so I think that there is an aspect of pain before, and that's not necessarily uh, just simply an evil thing that happened after the fall. Mm -hmm. Well, since this is not a debate, I won't go into uh, the step-by-step -step rebuttal of all that, but I have uh, answered some of those on my blog on chapter nine of my book review, A Matter of Days. I, I reviewed uh, Hugh Ross's, uh, his pinnacle work, a matter of days and chapter nine deals with that. So uh, there are some answers out there. Like I said, you know, this is your show 20 minutes uh, remaining, but maybe something that uh, we could look at is in uh, Acts chapter three, we see where uh, in Acts chapter three, verse 21, uh, Luke writes, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And if we look, where did God promise a restoration in his holy prophets? We can see in uh, Isaiah 11, a restoration of something means a, a uh, bringing back what once was, a restoration to uh, a correction of the way things were. And we look at Isaiah 11. And we see that the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling will lie together, the child will lead them, the cow will feed the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion and the, uh, will eat straw like the ox. So it seems to me that when we, when we look at a, a whole we, – we don't want to just look at, at Genesis in our conversation. We want right. to look at all of what God has revealed. And so when I, when I see these, these words in, in Acts and in the restoration, it doesn't seem to leave room in my thinking for 
uh, predation and the this the suffering of animal death uh, prior to the fall. And one last thing in that, that about that chapter in uh, Isaiah 11. At the end, uh, they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. The word harm there is uh, in Hebrew is ra. I wrote a, a blog post about this, and that word uh, ra is, uh, is is put in uh, contrast to the word for good, the Hebrew word taub. Uh, I think I've got 45 times. Let me just bring that up here uh, in the Old Testament good and evil, good and evil, uh, and God declares himself good. So if this word uh, good and evil are in contrast to each other all throughout the Old Testament, 27 times the Lord calls himself good, uh, and about 40 times it brings up a good and evil. Using those, those terms, taub, the Hebrew word for good, and the Hebrew word ra for evil or harm. So it seems like this raw, this evil is put in contrast with the character of God. And in Isaiah 11, when we see that the character of God, or there, there will be no more raw. There will be no more evil when God comes to restore creation the way it was. So maybe beyond the, it was a little pushback, not a, no, not a full on debate, but a, a pushback to why I think the young earth does uh, exclude animal predation prior to uh, the fall. Yeah. No, I, 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 and there's freedom to push back. There's freedom to comment. And I, I didn't, I mentioned this to you before. I mean, if you do want to go a little bit over, we can go over time. If, if this is a fun conversation, you have some extra time. If you need to end right at uh, the hour, we can end then. But um, this is fun. No. Uh, so I'm curious though, because so kind of a response to that is, is I recognize this restoration, right, of all things. At the same time, I think about uh, when scripture is talking about God designing things for a purpose. And so I think that, um, and I'd be curious uh, on your thoughts on this is, is was the original Garden of Eden uh, originally designed to be the eternal heaven? Or did God design that knowing that people would fall and that he would have this rescue plan? And so he's creating a world for the purpose of bringing people back to him. And so final restoration is restoring all things back into a perfect relationship, not necessarily saying it is going to go back exactly like the Garden of Eden was. So I guess the question is, is heaven exactly like Garden of Eden or are there aspects of Garden of Eden that won't be exactly like heaven because God is creating the garden for the purpose of knowing that people are going to fall um, and that it's restoring us back into right relationship with him in a perfect way without sin and pain and, and disease and, and whatnot. This is a, this is a, a great question. I think it, we could go multi-levels deep into the theology of it. Uh, article one, or the, th the first thing I would say is uh, that God definitely knew before the creation of the world that we would sin. And that he was going to bring about a way to bring restoration by the by his son. So it's uh, I am not an open theist that God didn't know what was going to happen throughout all creation. Right. It was all kind of decided through the uh, what are those uh, stories that you can pick your they're old you may not even know them in your generation. You could pick your own story, you know, based on which way you choose. The story has a different ending. So I don't believe that at all. God knew from beginning to end all of creation. He can see it outside of time. He is not bound by uh, time in any way. So he definitely knew that man would fall. Uh, secondly, 
uh, no, I don't think that Eden is heaven. Eden is the earthly place where God chose to interact with man. Uh, we see that, that theme throughout the Old Testament of mountains or the hill being the place where God would meet with his people. He met with Moses on the mountain. That's where he delivered uh, the Decalogue. He, he met with people on mountains. He met with Abraham on the mountain when he went to sacrifice his son. You know, Jesus was sacrificed on the, the, the hill of Golgotha. The, there's a, that's a, this is the place where – so that's a little bit of theological. We're, we're, we may get in the weeds uh with that so definitely the answer to your question is not that eden is not heaven but it's the place where god chose to interact with man yeah so a, I think, a special place right so i think going along with that and where i would agree is i would say yeah i think that god knowing what would happen uh god created this world uh this planet and it's possible that there was animal death beforehand uh, for the purpose of God's creation and that he can still have a restoration like you talked about where lion and lamb are standing sitting next to each other right not eating each other in heaven because we're not necessarily restoring back to what Garden of Eden was but we're restoring back to that perfect relationship that God originally designed and so you can fit a perfect restoration with animal death because it's a slightly different thing that God is restoring if that makes sense like what you well, just said yeah Animals, I don't believe animals are in heaven. So when you say how God is restoring it to like it was in, in heaven, I, I don't think that fits well with what the text is. Animals are a creation that fit in the – that it, they are bound by time. They are bound by biology. They are bound by the, the, the rules of this earth. So when there is a – when he talks about the restoration of a non-predation and peace and a no harm or destruction, he's not talking about – heaven he's talking about the the restoration of of creation i think at the at the beginning when there was no sin when when creation was not subject to corruption or groaning so I, I was referring to the passage you you mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11 of the uh the wolf shall dwell with the lamb the leopard shall right. lie down with the young goat and this kind of restoration of this peace that there will be i guess that's what right that peace to. existed the, the, Acts 3 tells us that there is a restoration of how things used to be, in as, as spoken of by the prophets. So, so anyway, you're saying uh, you're saying Isaiah? I, I have to look into this because I haven't looked into this for, uh, really before. Are you saying uh, are you make, saying that uh, Isaiah chapter 11 is talking about the lion and the lamb dwelling together, the sheep and the lamb dwelling together in the Garden of Eden, or or is that the the restored new heaven, new earth? That is the rest. That is the restoration of the the new heavens and earth. But Acts three says, this isn't a, this is uh, lions and lambs. It won't be the first time they will be lying together. It is a restoration of how things were, as we see in Acts. Okay. So it it is a re, it is a restoration of how creation was when God originally took care of things. So they're okay. they're linked. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um. All right. So um, one of the other questions that we talked about, because, man, we are we are flying through this time together. Uh, one of the other questions we talked about is um, I shared with you some some reasons why I think the Genesis does at least allow for the possibility of an old Earth interpretation. Um, and so uh, I know you have a lot of work on this and we could go a lot of different ways, but I kind of laid out three basics. Uh, number one is that the word Yom uh, does have different meanings. And I know you've talked about this as, uh, you know, it can be 
uh, daylight. Um, it can be a 24-hour day and it can be a period of time. And we see this in, for example, Genesis 1, 5, where it talks about creating the light, calling it day. Uh, you can say that we see this in each of the days where it says, and here's the day, and that could be 24 hours, as well as Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, uh, that it says in the day that the Lord God created, talking about um, the, the creation week. And it uses that word day and that time to talk about it, not just 24 hours, but a, a week period. Um, so I think that at least in my view, opens up the possibility that it's possible uh, that the not it's the only right interpretation is not 24 hours. It's because we see it within that context used three different ways. Um, so when I think that you pair that with, for example, day three, where it says that the vegetation actually grew out of the ground and, you know, based on what we know, vegetation takes longer to grow. And so it seems to be longer than 24 hours. And then as well as day six, when we see everything that took place on day six, where God created the animals and then he created uh, Adam and then he made the Garden of Eden and then he placed Adam in the Garden of Eden and then Adam tended to the garden and Adam named all the animals and then Adam got lonely, God created Eve. And then he says, oh my goodness, at last, flesh of my flesh, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Uh, that seems to suggest longer than a 24 hour period. And so I think that two of the days at the face value reading seem to suggest longer than 24 hours. Uh, the word yom allows for that as a possibility without twisting the word because it is one of the definitions used in Genesis chapter 2. And so I think at least those three points seem to say, hey, this is at least possible. This isn't a distortion. I'm not adding anything to the text. I'm reading the text at face value. And it sure seems like a lot is happening that would take longer than 24 hours. You might be surprised, but I do have answers to all those. Perfect. <laughs> so. And that's why I had you on. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if we want to get into all the specifics of it. Uh, and sadly, I think many young earth advocates do uh, fault by saying, by holding this so tightly that yom or day in Genesis, taking Genesis as a whole, if you, if you take every use of the word yom in Genesis and they, they hold tightly to it's gotta be every time it's used is 24 hours. So uh, I'm not one of those. I, you know, uh, sometimes it, you can put people in buckets and that, that makes it easier to uh, discard their argument. You know, so-and-so so is a young earth. Therefore, they believe these things that have all been said about young earthers. Therefore, I can discard <laughs> everything about them. Uh, You're saying it's not that times, easy? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're having a, a friendly conversation and I'm totally right. enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't. I don't have that uh, that that view of scripture. Uh, I would consider myself a contextualist. We ought to look at the context and then interpret based on that context. As I don't know if you said it beforehand when we were talking beforehand or on the show itself, but yeah, genre is definitely an important part of biblical interpretation. It's part of our hermeneutic. Um, so you might be surprised too when you ask of you know if, if the word yom is used in uh, genesis 1 where can we look at other in other places in scripture to maybe find an an, an exegetical proof or boundary for where yom might be limited to only a 24 hour day and surprise surprise it's it's in here in exodus 20 when and i'm sure you've heard this before too that uh in exodus 20 god is laying out the decalogue he's given moses this is a historical rendering of the way that the god's people are to behave and uh, he's laying it out step by step this is how i expect my people to behave and he gets uh 
to the fourth commandment, and he says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you, your son, nor your daughter, or your manservant, maidservant, your animals. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And on the seventh day he rested. So uh, going back to Scripture again, I can see there there appears to be a pretty strong boundary to the word yom back in Genesis 1 because God compares them directly. Just as God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, so you, my people, are to work for six days and rest for one of those days. We'll call it the Sabbath, and it's a day that you uh, worship me and spend that day not doing any work or any labor to improve yourself. Trust God, not me. Trust God will be able to provide for your needs on that seventh day as a rest. So, uh, Yes, again, I think it's important we go back to Scripture to find those boundaries, not look to outside authorities for the boundaries to Yom. And not every place. You mentioned the other place in Genesis 2 at the end. Uh, that day, that portion of the day, you know, it says, When the Lord had made the earth and heavens, and no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. Uh, let's see, I'm losing it. On the, in, in, in that day, or in the day. Uh, that seems to be a small period of time. But specifically for the, the days of Genesis one, there is a boundary in Exodus 20. Yeah. So I think what, what seems to be, um, you know, and I, I know it's, this is a conversation, right, where we probably both heard everything that each other is saying. Sure, totally. <laughs> so we're not necessarily presenting new things, but I'm not expecting that you're going to respond like everyone has responded, right? And ho so hopefully those listening to us are also learning different responses. But um, that, I mean, if you assume that, uh, or if you take the interpretation that Genesis one day is 24 hours, then it fits into Exodus uh, 20 or in, and Exodus 31, where it's both those times it's used in 2017, I think 31, 17 too. Um, exactly. Uh, to that nature. However, I think at the same way though, if Genesis one is, let's say periods of time, then the same thing can be said of Exodus 20, where God is saying, look, I, I created in six periods of time and rest in one. And so you're going to work for six and rest one. And here's the week. And so he is creating a pattern uh, of how we are going to work and rest uh, that matches his pattern of working and resting. And so I think that that both of those, in my mind, they both can fit, right? So if we say, look, this is 24 hours, you can, we can look in Exodus and say, see, it fits well. But I think if we say, here's a pattern of how God created, and it can fit in the pattern with how God told us to work and rest, I think both of those can fit. And we can't say, because Exodus, it can't mean this. I think there's still a way to reconcile it. That's fair. And I don't think what you're saying is a heretical view. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put that as heresy. But I would say that it takes some liberty with the way the passage is used, rather than saying a day as they are used to hearing, as it and as it says, just as God did his work in these days, so you are to work in these days. He doesn't say, take this pattern, and even though I worked for the number of days of the, the amount of grains of sand or the, the stars in the heavens, if you could count them, he chose to use and reveal to us using the word day. And there are words he could have used that tell us of a long period of time. There are Hebrew words that are for eons. You know, I created in day one, it took me eons to get to day two. And it took me uh, more eons or more, you know, grains of sand. And, and the writer of Moses, you know, the writer of uh, the Pentateuch, knew how to handle big, 
concepts of big numbers, the, the sand of the sea, the stars in the sky, and God didn't use a term like that to describe the number of days or years that he did his creative works. He chose day. And so it seems outside of the scriptures, when, when I use just the scripture, what it says in context, the boundary seems pretty strong. And so, like I said, I, I'm not think I'm not saying you're a heretic. You're you're not. We, <laughs> That's we, good because I've had other fellowship. I've had <laughs> I've had Christians tell me I am a heretic and a false teacher because I disagree with their theology. And so, hey, I'm. But I do that. disagree with how you interpreted that in Exodus by saying, "Well, it's just a pattern," because it seems to be more than a pattern when God says, "Day and day, just as I did it, so you are to do it." Right. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I think it's if, again, we, we take an interpretation of Genesis that is a longer period of time, then obviously God is not expecting us to work for millions of years and then rest at the very end. And so <laughs> it's putting it into <laughs> context, right? It's putting it into context of how we would understand. Now, we did just hit an hour, um, but there's a couple things that I really would like to discuss if you do have a couple extra minutes. If not, sure. we can say bye I and have, have a part two. All right. Yeah. I normally check with my guests before if they can go over. And so it's not this awkward moment uh, during the conversation. But, um, one thing that you mentioned is uh, this idea that we went back to the beginning, right? It's all about authority. And that's kind of what we're talking about is the authority of word, uh, of scripture and how uh, science, you said at the beginning, science should not inform our theology. Um, I've, I've always been curious to have this conversation and to be able to ask, um, and I don't want this to kind of come across weird or, or uh, negative or something, but I, I, it's an honest question I've had is, if we don't allow science to affect our understanding of scripture at all, how do we understand the passages in scripture that talk about the conflict that used to be of like heliocentrism versus geocentrism? So for example, in Joshua chapter 10, where it says that the earth literally stopped in the sky and the moon stopped too. Uh, uh, sorry, it's the sun stopped in the sky and the moon stopped. Um, would you hold that the earth was, sorry, that the sun was moving and literally the sun is what stopped in the sky? Or how would you understand Joshua 10? So that's a great question. I think it's one that uh, we may not have a full understanding of till we get to heaven. And God, show us the video of how, what happened there. Uh, but again, the Bible was written uh, perspectively. And as a, uh, you know, the specific example you get, I thought you were going to give the example of, uh, um, oh, well, uh, heliocentrism, uh, some, some of the Psalms that talk about the corners of the earth and this and right. that. Well, those are poetic passages. So we, we right. definitely want to read God's word in context. And God was not saying that the, the earth is literally on pillars any more than God has arms and a strong arm by which he defeated the Egyptians. Right. So uh, as, as far as the, the sun standing still in the sky, uh, I would say that the sun is moving. I mean, through space. So it is all of a, it's, it's all a relative point. We pick Earth as our relative point. The writer of Joshua chose the relative point of Earth to say that the, the sun is not moving in the same way that we say there is a sunrise and a sunset every day. Well, right. It doesn't li the sun doesn't literally rise or set. And yet even today, you can we can go to weather.com and it will tell us the time of the sunset, uh, which it'll happen right. two hours for me before it. I'm I'm ahead of time for you. You're you're <laughs> trying to play catch up here. Yeah. So, no, and, and that's and that's why I don't use right, and that's Go why ahead. I don't use the Psalms and and, and other passages because those are poetic versus Joshua being a historical. But I guess I guess my kind of pushback is that 
we can only say that's a perspective or what I would call phenomenological language, language based on our perspective. The only way that you would read that into the text is if you take modern scientific knowledge that we are moving around the sun, that the sun is not moving and that we are moving around the sun. Because if you're just going to read scripture without allowing any science to inform your theology, you have to, it seems like you have to admit that it's the sun that normally is moving. We are sitting still and that the sun stopped and there has never been a day previously, nor has there been since then a day where the sun stopped and that the sun is now the one that's moving, not us. So how do you get that it's our perspective and that it's a phenomenological language without using science? So I, my pushback to you would be just the way we talked about how at the beginning, you know, God's revelation in scripture is intended to reveal this part of who God is and God's revelation in creation is intended to reveal this part of who God is. And uh, so there's, so science should still be informed by our theology, but the, the theology of the sun stopping in the sky isn't a, uh, in that context, isn't a scientific question that God is trying to reveal about himself. He's trying to reveal his power over creation. So the theology is still uh, defining our our science because if I if I believe and I don't <laughs> that everything revolves around the Earth, that is not a that doesn't give give me a theological problem. Does that kind of make sense? God's revelation through creation. So if if I did believe that everything revolved around the Earth and that God stopped the sun in the sky, what theological a uh, problem would I have about the nature of who God is? And, and so I don't think the that theology, would, as you were saying, right? And that wouldn't I don't think create a theology problem. And that's where I think it's consistent with then looking at Genesis and taking that same framework. That often when we take and say, here's what we know scientifically, and based on our scientific knowledge, we are going to allow that to not. It's not a, more of an authority than Scripture, but it is allowing us to more accurately understand Scripture. And if you're going to say that, uh, not necessarily you, but if, if, if we hold to this idea that our science, anytime we use science to inform our theology is saying science is a greater authority, then we should not be using science and, geo and heliocentrism to inform our reading of Joshua chapter 10. To, to, to look at Joshua chapter 10 and say, well, we recognize that's a perspective language. That's only because what we previously know scientifically. And so why couldn't we then say the same thing about Genesis 1 and say this is perspective language based on what we know scientifically? But I would never claim that you, saying Joshua 10 is perspective language, are putting science as a greater authority than Scripture. I would never say, no, just because the plain reading of the text, right? I've heard this said by young earthers too, that if you give Genesis 1 to some culture that knows nothing and say, read this, what are they going to get? Well, they're going to get that six-day creation. See, that's the plain reading. And I would say the same thing. If you give Joshua 10 to a culture that knows nothing scientifically and say, what do you get? They're going to say, the sun is moving. The earth sits still. So how is that? That seems like a consistency thing that is inconsistent if we say our science should never inform. Does that make sense? So again, I would go back to this idea of models. You know, the, the, the broken young earth model versus the broken old earth model. And in the, the young earth model that is imperfect, has there are many tenets to how we interpret 
the the scriptures and see how that that fit or i guess the scriptures seem to reveal to me what the young earth, young earth model is revealing or is is codifying so uh the young earth position as we talked about seems to not allow for as we've already talked about the death disease suffering uh, all that prior to to death so uh that is a theological problem that I see with old earthism to have to account for those based on what the scripture talks about throughout in, in, you know, in Peter and acts and John, and we talked about in Isaiah. So this particular one that you mentioned, it's a, it's a good one. And I don't necessarily have a good answer for how that, that doesn't necessarily reveal to me the young earth model, but that one piece by itself doesn't seem to me to be a, doesn't crater the foundation. It doesn't have a theological problem. I can still see from the perspective. You used a nice big word. That's a $5 word there. Perspective. What was it again? The phenomenological language. Phenomenological language doesn't, uh, I don't think it hides something about who God is. It doesn't leave me with a theological problem. It leaves me with a scientific problem. If I were to have believed that, uh, you know, geocentrism was taught in scripture. And I don't believe that it is. It was just a feminine. Gosh, I did it again. I can only use one dollar <laughs> words, Brian. Help me out here. Phenomenological. Yeah, no, it's phenomenological no, I, language. There you go. No, fair enough. I just think, and, and there's a couple of questions I want to ask in the live chat, and then we'll have to end. And maybe you yeah, guys can say if it. you want to have a part two later on, and, and we can let the listeners decide if they want to hear part two. But because um, there's a lot more that, that we've discussed. Yeah, there's a lot fun. more that we've discussed that we have not gotten to here. Uh, and obviously, we're not going to solve this in, in one hour. But uh, what I'm not saying, though, is, is I want to be clear is because the comment came in um, from in his image is I, I'm not I, I mean, what I'm not saying is is whether this creates a problem or not. I'm just saying I think that there's a consistency to to how we interpret and how we use both science and our reading of scripture to interpret. And I often hear from a younger side that we should never use allow for science to affect into our interpretation, that we always just take the plain reading of the text first. And I think Joshua 10, yes, it does not affect any other biblical doctrine, but Joshua 10, I think that we all read that and say, well, clearly it's talking about perspective language. And I would say, I think we only come to that understanding because we know that scientifically the sun is the center and we're moving around, therefore it's perspective language. But no one would say, how dare you? Because you say that's perspective language. How dare you put the authority of science over scripture? You need to take the plain reading of the text. And so I think in the same way that we all read Joshua 10 and say, hey, that's language of perspective, because we have a scientific understanding of how the solar system works without compromising the authority of scripture, I think that we can do a similar thing when it comes to Genesis 1 and take our, our the world around us and how we understand the world and apply that to our understanding of scripture without decreasing the authority of God's word. It's taking both of God's revelation equally and saying, how do we understand both of these uh, Recognize, you know, in that sense? So that was kind of my point there. I don't know if you would agree or disagree with kind of that approach and and how I would want to apply that the same way to Genesis chapter one. As as said, I, I think it is uh, I think it is an inconsistency uh, to say we, because we can do something in this part of scripture, therefore we can do that same thing in this part of scripture, even if they're not perfectly analogous. So I don't think it is a consistent position to say we can just because we can do it here, or we can also do that same thing here. 
if the contexts aren't exactly synonymous or exactly what we're looking for. We, we always want to look at scripture in the context and uh, let scripture be the, the defining factor for defining our, uh, our science or our under, understanding of nature. Fair enough. Okay. Two quick questions for you. Um, uh, would you say uh, that Psalm, and this is supposed to say there in the next one, Psalm 104, uh, is Psalm 104, would you say, is that a creation Psalm? A Psalm kind of describing God's creation, or how would you understand Psalm 104? So like the, in uh, Psalm 104, for example, uh, some people say God, that's a creation Psalm. And in that Psalm, it talks about the lion roaring for its prey. And so if this is talking about creation and the lion's roaring for its prey, it seems like that during God's creation, there was maybe some animal death. Yeah, this person hasn't read my blog because I have <laughs> written many times. If they if they continue on reading in Psalm 104, uh, they'll see how uh, may God. Uh, let's see, let me get the right verse because I just turned there. Um, but may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. So by that progression of thought that this person brought in, if it is only a creation poetic psalm and there is predation in there, by that same logic, we must also say there are sinners and wicked in there as well, since this uh, psalm uh, talks about that. And we want to interpret poetic psalms, which are part of God's revelation, and I totally think we ought to interpret them correctly, but we should not use poetic psalms to reinterpret a historical narrative. And that's what we get in Genesis, is a, hist- a, a history of how God did things. We shouldn't take a, in Psalm 104, where it says, uh, he wraps himself in light with a garment, and he stretches out the heavens like a tent, and lays the beams of the upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, and rides on the wings of the wind. So we, we don't use... Uh, poetic language. We talked about phenomenological. I, I just got to practice saying that word. Uh, we don't <laughs> hey, use I had poetic to language. Too. We don't use poetic language like that, and then bring it back in as an interpretive framework over a contextually uh, historical narrative. Okay, and but would you say though? I mean, there are ways because it, it seems deep because. Obviously, there's poetic language in something, but still there's poetic things that can still speak truth about reality. Totally. So it's not, we can't just write, dismiss that. everything. And, right. Yeah. Okay. I'm not now, dismissing was, it. I hope you didn't hear that. No, no yeah. We, so what, what, what was the revelation? Yeah. What was the uh, verse in Psalm 104 that you talked about the uh, predation? 35. In 35, 35. The oh, let sinners yeah. consume it from the earth. Okay. Awesome. Um, last question, I think, that came in for you. If I can now go back. I, I should have started like I can. Um <laughs> We were having a great conversation. I can understand. You were distracted. Yeah, there we go. Uh, it wasn't my face, though. It was the conversation. Another question from Slammer. And thanks, Slam, for sending these in. And um, let me put this. Oh, no, don't grow big like that. Mo- just move. Okay, it's not moving for me. There's something blocking it. Um, okay. Uh, how does our planet uh, have 76 quadrillion tons of biomass without animal death before the fall? So where, you know, we, these biodeposits, the scientific understanding is that they were are there because of decomposed animals before the fall. Uh, what would you say as far as uh, where all this biomass uh, came from? So this is a common uh, Hugh Ross uh, explanation or question to young earthers. And as you pointed out, neither of us were going to get into the science because neither of, neither of us are scientists. And whatever I say, uh, slam our in, will say, well, he's not a scientist. He doesn't know. But from the research I have done in answer to that question, uh, 
um, ICR, Institute for Creation Research, has done uh, some great studies about uh, the extrapolation of biomass prior to the fall and how there, you know, most of the biomass we find in buried in the earth is sea life, plankton, and uh, yeah, plankton. What's the other? Uh, it takes in the sun, chloroform. There's a uh, Tiny single-celled organ organism in the water. What is that? Is it? I'm blanking. Plankton. Does plankton <laughs> take in the sun? It's the plant that it's in the water, yeah. and uh, it can take in cl uh, chlor uh, the chlorophyll and yeah. uh, turn it into sugar. I've totally messed that up. But there, <laughs> I said we weren't going to get into the science. Then I ask you this question. Oh, I, I apologize. There is an, extrapola there is an apologize. extrapolation that uh, yields pl uh, plenty of biomass being available in the years before the fall. So good question. I appreciate that. Well, Matt, you have gone over time. You've given me more than you agreed to. And so I appreciate that. And I thank you. And I hope that this conversation is, you know, we've had fun. Uh, I hope that those listening have enjoyed this, at least get some uh, different perspectives there in his image does say it is plankton. So there you go. Thank you in his image for the help. I appreciate it. Um, so I hope that they have, uh, this has helped those who are listening. And I just want to thank you for just the work. And again, encourage the people uh, to, to check out your blog, apologetic.com for a lot of your, uh, your thoughts and your, your blogs and in your comments that go even further than what we have had here. And again, I'll maybe throw it out there. If you want a follow-up conversation where we get into other things that we did not get into um, that we had talked about, or if you have other issues that you want to hear us address, you can always uh, comment in. Let me put up that social media. There we go. Uh, you can follow me, subscribe, check out the other videos, follow me on social media, and you can uh, get those. Uh, uh, you can tell us if you want to hear a follow-up conversation between Matt and myself. So Matt, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Ryan, thanks for having me. God bless. Absolutely. So everybody, as I just mentioned, I hope that you enjoyed this. Hopefully it was encouraging to you at least hear some different thoughts from different people and hear some pushback and questions on this fun topic, but also very important topic. Uh, again, next week is uh, not going to be a show. I'm going to be in Salt Lake City. I fly out to Salt Lake City on Monday, just kidding, Sunday morning for a week-long mission trip there with a group of students. And so I will be back next week for the end of the month Q&A. So you can come back at the end of the month Q&A and ask me some more questions then. So thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for watching. Check out all the other interviews that are going to pop up over here. And if you have liked this, subscribe because there's going to be more conversations that you might like as well. So thank you so much in his image and Samarin and Kelvy and others that were here. I appreciate it. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and continue to think deeply about God and Christianity and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. God bless everybody. Bye. I just ask you leave. Won't hesitate to follow. Free.